Welcome to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. The sag After Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag After Foundation or access the full library of our conversations or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sagaftra.foundation. That's www.sagaftra.foundation. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SagAfterFound. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> Um, so, welcome to the SAG Foundation Conversations. Um, I wanted to start by saying that you are a woman who wears very many hats. You are an actor, obviously, right. a director, a producer, a teacher, a political activist, a feminist, and an author of a best-selling memoir, Ask Me Again Tomorrow, A Life in Progress. Oh, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> Your life is full. Um, you have received an Academy Award, a New York Film Critics Award, an LA Film Critics Award, and a Golden Globe for Moonstruck. Um, in the theater, you received an Obie Award for Bertolt Brecht's A Man's Man, an Obie Award for Christopher Durang's The Marriage of Bette and Boo, mm -hmm. and you are a founding member of the whole theater in Montclair, New Jersey, uh, the Actors Company in Boston, and the Charles Playhouse in Boston. Those are one and the same, actually. Oh, they are? Yeah. Oh, you're when kidding. When we moved, we just changed our name oh. That's it, to Charles Playhouse. And it's now very famous, right? It's, are you still? No, it's actually a kind of a shabby place at oh, this point. Oh, you're joking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, I it's, saw I thought it looked quite impressive. You, you went there? You've no, gone I, I Googled it. Oh. Well. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're also, in 1992, you were a recipient of the New Jersey Governor's Walt Whitman Creative Arts Award. Yeah, that was a nice one. Yeah. Um, um, other notable films besides no, uh, Moonstruck are Mr. Holland's Opus with Richard Dreyfus, Woody Allen's Mighty Aphrodite, um, The Look Who Who's Talking series with Kirstie Alley and John Travolta, Herb Ross's Steel Magnolias, and I could go on and on and on. <laughs> well, I think the one that means the most to me, actually, mm -hmm. the one I enjoyed the most is Tales of the City. Right. Right. That's so that was, I don't know how many of you I've know been that. into television. I'm not there yet. That's all. Uh, I yeah. have to mention The Simpsons because my 10 year old son loves The Simpsons. Oh, right, right. <laughs> And I was trying to get him to come with this. She was on The Simpsons. <laughs> um, yes, you did. Also, the HBO TV movie, Lost, uh, The Last of the Blonde Bombshells. I can't talk because I'm all nervous. <laughs> with Judy Dench. You want um, me to read it? I can read it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and Tales of the City, the miniseries for PBS. And, of course, the spin-offs, More Tales of the City and right. Further Tales of the City. Right, right. Yeah, that's the, those um, are the best. Yeah, they are. They are your best experiences. Well, I, I like the, the, the character. It was so wonderful. Right. Um, I'm going to get to that more later, okay? Because okay. I, I want to start um, by talking about your movie that has just been released, Away From Her, right. with Julie Christie, uh, Gordon Pinsent, uh, Michael Murphy, um, and directed by actress Sarah Polly. 
Um, now, this is a small, independent Canadian film um, with these wonderful actors. Right. Uh, this is directed by Sarah Polly, like I mentioned, who is... Well, tell us a little bit about the film first. Well, first of all, Sarah is, um, I think, 28 years old right, right now. And she, this, she adapted this as a, um, from a short story by Alice Munro, who is a Canadian and an internationally known writer of short stories. And this short story actually appeared, I think, in The New Yorker as well as in her collections. And it was called The Bear Came Over the Mountain, which is a really, I think, very interesting title if, if, once you get to see the movie and think about it. And uh, I had done a, a movie by another, uh, with another Canadian director, Thom Fitzgerald. I was actually an American who kind of despaired of living here and went to Canada. <laughs> at, at any rate, he's up in Nova Scotia now, and he did a film called The Event, uh, which was about assisted suicide. And Sarah played uh, a do my daughter in it, one of my daughters in it. And that's when I got to meet her. And one of the things we did all the time was just laugh a lot. We just laughed a lot together. And she told me she was uh, wanted to direct, and she sent me some short films. She did a very interesting thing. I don't know what age it was, 22, 23. She'd been acting since she was like six or something like that. She uh, stopped acting and went to film school for a couple of years. And out of that came these shorts, and out of that, of course, was the desire to do feature-length films. Right. So she called me up, and she had said during the event, she says, I'm going to do a, a, a movie. I want to call you up. I want you to be in. And I thought, okay, we'll see. You know, sure. All right, right, whatever. <laughs> and indeed, she calls me up. I said, we'll send the script. She sends the script. I, I'm, I'm out to page 10, and I think, my God, this is really good. Who wrote this? I go back. Adapted by Sarah Pauly. I thought, ooh, this is something she, I didn't know she could she could do that. And uh, so that's how it began and um, went up and I shot it. And it was really a lo low budget was really. But there weren't that many and the locations were all really. She, of course, she knew the country very well and they knew exactly where to go. And her husband is the editor and he was on the set all the time. And I, I began to understand that he was a real, I mean, he has a real aesthetic, this man, mm -hmm. and which they share. But he, he, I think he was invaluable to her really? during this process. A real team yeah. work sort a of really, project. Really, really. Although right. she, she said it was a bit much being in the editing room with him so much. <laughs> <laughs> she found it a little too much. Yeah, I, I, I saw some interview. I, I did told she, you earlier. Did she say that? She did she say that? She called the, it divorce editing or something <laughs> like that. But they got through it apparently. Yeah, right. But what's astonishing also is this young woman is directing this movie, which is a movie about, well, it's sort of a love story, but it's about... No, it is a love story. It's a love story. It's not You're sort right. of. You're right, it is. It really well, is a love story. Go ahead and describe Well, it is a, a love story. story. People, there's, Julie Christie has Alzheimer's and, and knows it and wants to go into a facility sooner rather than later. She doesn't, she wants it her choice. She wants it her decision. The first night she's there, she insists that she and her husband make love in that bed. Mm -hmm. And then he has to go away for a month while she makes an adjustment, supposedly. And then when, but then when he comes back, she doesn't know him at all. So 
then she meets somebody there that she had known when she was a teenager. And although her short-term memory is totally shot, her long-term memory is there. And they actually fall in love and are very romantic and physical with each other. And he sees this. And then he, he, this, this man turns out to be my husband, who I put, I put there for two weeks while I go away on a vacation. Then I take him out. And then, of course, she is absolutely full on and, right. and brokenhearted. And then the story is how he tries to give his wife what he feels will make her happy. And it's to get this man back into that hospital. And to what ends he's willing to go He to wants that. to and see her happy to, again. Yeah, because she's falling into this death, tries, he what tries to seduce me. Initially, uh, uh, it's an interesting thing that happens. And um, well, tell us about your character in the movie yeah. and what she goes through as well. She because she's in a, a real transitional period as Very. well because her husband she knows also about this this love affair. Right. And she deals with it in a different way right. than the Gordon Pinson character. Grant. Well, her husband. There seems to have been. I don't know when it started in their lives. There's not that much backstory, but certainly he. There's some terrible irregularity that happened to him. He was a kind of a CEO for some company, and some terrible indiscretions and I don't know uh, illegality occurred, and they they got rid of him and without his balloon retirement kind of thing. And so all she really has is this house and this guy who seems to have had some kind of collapse. It's not really clear whether he has dementia. It's a combination of dementia, small strokes, whatever it is, and you don't really get clear. But he's silent. He won't speak. Yeah, I think he has aphasia or something. And uh, but she won't she won't put him back. She won't put him there because she'd have to sell the house to put him there, and that's all she's got. Right. So that's why. The Gordon Pinsent character. The, Do you think the Gordon Pinsent character brings Marion out of herself in a way? I think, you know, when I was watching it, I, Marion has sort of decided, has, has come to peace sort of with the situation no, or has made a decision about what she's, she's going to do. She's not at peace at all. That's part of the problem at the beginning. Right. She's not at peace. Right. There's, there are a lot of kind of things at bay in her. Mm -hmm. And um, so th this, this situation, it's interesting. She, she, in, at first she resists it. And then when they go dancing, et cetera, she makes, it, it's, a, it's a, I think for me, one of the best scenes she has in the movie, when she says to him, I know what you're doing. Right. Couldn't you do it better? Couldn't you hide your real intentions better? She says, I'm trying to make, and this is the line that always got me, trying to make a decision to be happy. Right. You know, and right. I, and that's, that that's to me kind is, of sums up your character, yeah. isn't it? You're going through that journey. Well, that for her, it's a decision. Most right. people are kind of spontaneously happy. <laughs> but, but for her, she recognizes that it's a, this is a decision. And, and I actually think that, it's probably true for a lot of us. I, I can identify with that line. Mm -hmm. That I frequently, I mean, I can either make a decision to be happy or to, mm -hmm. 
choose to look at, the husband is always saying that the cup is half empty for me mm -hmm. as opposed to half right, full, right, right, you know right. what I mean? So that kind of thing of how you look at something. Can you relate to this story on an Alzheimer's level? I mean, mm. how, how so? Well, um, uh, my mother had Alzheimer's, and so uh, and it was a five-year period. And it's uh, for those of you who know Alzheimer's intimately like that, you know what a terrible roller coaster it is, and um, how painful it is for everyone in a family to deal with it. I had have three children, and for each one of them, it was a very specific drama as it was for my husband and as it was for my brother and his wife. I mean, we were all terribly taken and pulled into the whole thing. There's a, a, a scene, um, well, not a scene, but part of Julie Christie's sort of deterioration is, uh, and, and I was talking to the, the Lionsgate fellow, you said it's sort of open-ended. You're not sure if this is her reaction to her husband. She, she um, goes back to the past. She stirs up the past that was very hurtful to her. And she kind of focuses on the negative. And it's not clear if it's because of Alzheimer's or if that's just where she's going at this point in her life. But she kind of, she goes sort of in and out of reality as well. I mean, at the very well, I guess I shouldn't say what happened at the very end of the movie, but I mean, that was sort of interesting to me that what I read about your mother and her she Alzheimer's... She came out, yeah. There were little windows. Right, exactly. Little windows. After two years of not knowing me, I went one night to visit her, urged on by a friend who said to me, you know, there are things you haven't said to your mother, you must say them to her. And I said, mm -hmm. I, I think it's a little late now. My mother doesn't know who I am. Right. Come on, let's go, she said. I thought... So uh, she insisted, so it was 8 o'clock, I went, my mother by that time, you could barely see under the sheet, she was so slim and small, she, I think she weighed about 80 pounds, and she was never tall, she was always about 5 feet, she always said she was 5'1", but she never was, she was <laughs> and um, so I went over to her, and I, I shook her, and I woke her up, and I said, mother, mother, it's Olympia, and she said, Olympia, I've been looking all over for you. Aww. I was like, of course, I immediately started to cry. Yeah. I couldn't even believe it. It was this little window when, and it's the same thing happens in the movie mm -hmm. when you make a connection like yeah. that. And it's so important, I suppose, at that. Well, you know, it was important because... for me because I said things to her that I had never said. I did it. Mm -hmm. And her reply was astonishing to me. Um, uh, well, I've put it in a book. I don't know why I shouldn't share it with you now. <laughs> and it's, like, it's not like it's a big secret. Uh, she, uh, I said to her how frightened I'd been of her. She was very volatile and very physical and, and uh, very tough and very critical and a lot of things. But mostly the physical thing was really... You know, and she would want me to cry, and I wouldn't cry, and there was this battle of will going on all the time. And, and she was out, out, out of control ang angry at me. Mm -hmm. 
and I told her, I said to her, I've been frightened of her, and I was crying. And I said the whole thing, and she said to me, well, it was a very difficult birth. <laughs> what I knew and kind of put together in that moment was that she, I had been breech, it was a breech birth, but a terrible one. Mm -hmm. She had been ripped and torn, and they didn't do the plastic surgery, et cetera, or that the they did. the cesareans probably as often either. So probably, and they told her she couldn't have another child. She would put her life in risk, but she had another child, and she told me at a separate time she, she didn't want me to be alone in the world. And it's like, uh, and so what was in her, I, I, she, she actually helped me understand, was a lot of anger, mm -hmm. which she didn't feel entitled to. Mm -hmm. that a mother's not supposed to feel that way, but it would come out. Mm -hmm. And it was a ver revelation and, and uh, that much abused word, a gift, because I was able to finally understand what had happened, what had started all this stuff mm -hmm. between us. And then, of course, I was very willful, and her job as a Greek mother was to make sure that I did not dishonor their family. Mm -hmm. And uh, she couldn't see that with that kind of willfulness and independence that I wasn't going to do that. So we were... Buttheads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I want to just ask you a little bit about working with Sarah Pauly. I mean, what did you find her at all intimidated with working with these amazing actors? A little bit. Or? She was at the beginning. Uh -huh. She kind of, well, you know, I think maybe if we put the cup here and blah, blah, blah. She stopped that pretty soon. Okay. <laughs> She's uh, she herself has been through a great deal. She um, I think she had tuberculosis of the spine, if I'm not mistaken, and mm -hmm. she spent I don't know a year in bed, and she, she's got like a steel rod in her right. spine. She was like four years in a brace. In and brace. Then at like fourteen, she had this operation. And then this rod. I don't the exactly rod. quite understand it, but that rod is there. Physically and metaphorically, <laughs> let me tell you. Um, yeah, and she said, well, I, I just have a quote from her. She said, it was interesting to make a film about what love looked like after life had gotten in the way and what remains. And I think she was also, I, I saw an interview with her. She was talking about, it was what sparked her interest is the fact that she was newly married. Yeah. You know, and she wanted to sort of explore right. what it might be like 50 years down the road. So I thought that was very interesting. Do you think she accomplished that? I think she accomplished a version of it. Uh, uh, right. <laughs> probably through rose-colored glasses. <laughs> that's a, that's my, my, I mean, I've been married 44 years. Yes. So. Uh, yes, I know. I have a, oh, I don't know. And I want to ask you about that as well. Now, but, I Thanks mean, for your vote of confidence. <laughs> well, this movie is, you must go see it. It's open to rave reviews. It'll open wide on Friday, I believe, tomorrow? Ten, I think it goes ten, to ten. Ten theaters and then wide later and on. Then one, yeah. But yeah, I just saw it today and, and enjoyed it thoroughly and, and touched me deeply. Um, now, I want to talk a little bit about you, specifically, like your whole life. Oh, okay. <laughs> you were born... <laughs> You were born. A lot of in, it is pretty boring. I'll no, tell you that one. Right I don't now. think so. You were born in Lowell, Massachusetts, to Greek immigrant parents, and um, your brother's named Apollo. 
Now, I, when I read that your brother was named Apollo and you were Olympia and the Greek god Apollo was born in Olympia, uh, and Olymp the whole, Mount Olympus, I, was, they all lived there, right? yeah. Right? I was wondering, well, I guess I can't really say what the connection was because it's sort of obvious, but I mean, it's interesting to me because at that time when your parents immigrated to the States, which was uh, early in the 20th century, yeah. when they had children, they tended to give them Western sort of names so that they would integrate into the culture, you know, and not kind of, you know, put their children through more grief than they absolutely had to, you know. Well, it's a mixed bag. Right. They, they in, so, in some ways, they really wanted to assimilate, but there were some ways in which they wanted to hold on. Right. Which is true which is for so all. Fantastic. You can see that in all more recent immigrant yes, groups. Yes, you can sure spot you can. it. Yeah. So it was a contradiction. They carried a contradiction. On the one hand, they, they, there were things about being in America that they, they grabbed hold of very quickly. But also, you see, they, my, they came into Lowell where they were, the mills were in Lowell. Uh -huh. And the Greeks, being the new immigrants in town, were subject to a, a lot of harassment. And the women, when they went, had to, the men had to surround them because the Irish and the Germans and the French would, would not only humiliate them, they would throw dirty water bags at them, they would throw stones at them. But this happened to every immigrant group right. that hits, hit the shores at that time. Right. Uh, you know, this, this went on. So, and what the grown-ups did in the mills, we did in the streets. So there was a lot of fighting, and it was all about names, and it was about, you know, standing up for your name. It's a big thing about the name. And so then when I got to New York and they said, well, you should change your name, it was like, no, no, no. I was going to ask you, did you I'm ever not think my... about changing I your did. name? I did, and I, and I realize now I should have if I were really <laughs> career-minded, but it, that I couldn't. It was just too many fights on the street, too many. And how did that too affect much. you? We would put stones in snow and oh. throw them. Oh. By the time I was 11, 12, I had a knife. I, did I use it? No. Did I brandish it? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I had to. I mean, you how know? did that, how did your childhood affect, okay, so how did that, I mean. <laughs> I'll tell you how. I walk into the room and I can spot the enemy in 10 minutes. <laughs> My husband walks into the room and he can tell you who, what wonderful people are there. Oh, uh, right. But I know that one over that one. I have to watch that. I'm so you st I just, <laughs> Do you still carry the knife? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I, I, I watch. I, I, so how, what, what drew you to acting? What drew me, I have no idea. No. None whatsoever. If I sit back and try to think about it, I suppose both my parents did a lot of uh, amateur stuff uh, for the Greek War Relief for the American Red Cross during the Second World War. My father played Oedipus Rex <laughs> in a classical Greek uh, as part of the Demosthenes Club in Lowell. He did Madame X as a, as a, a benefit in... Um, during the Second World War, there was, so I mean, I played the spirit of young Greece, I don't know when, excuse me, when I was 10 or something, <laughs> in something that they had, and I mean. They had a real solid Greek community, it sounds like, in Lowell. Uh, well, yeah, I, there was in Lowell, but what happened is that the Greeks became, began to become a political bloc, and the way they controlled it was 
they they moved in and they decided to redevelop the area and and they raised all the buildings that the Greeks were in. And I, my father was a young lawyer at the time, and he they tried to stop it, but they couldn't. They 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 were afraid the Greeks were going to be, and they did they did become a political. I mean, eventually a Greek was governor in Massachusetts. A couple, of, so that kind of thing did happen. But right. it, it's a very interesting thing. You take a look at these immigrants and. What happened? We think now how terrible it is, what's happening with the Mexicans. I mean, blood, blood was on the street. Terrible, terrible things were going on, as they are now. So, yeah. Well, you. uh, Still, we do it better than other countries. This this bringing together, I think, of uh, various immigrants. I mean, I think, yeah, I think we do do it better than most countries. Even with all the violence and with everything else, we. We at least are set up structurally to say we want it to work. Right. Whether we can get it to work is something else. But, we, but we're structurally it's, set up. We all, we all agree that it's what we want to have happen here. Right. You know, which is not happening other places. I keep thinking about that. Right. The price people paid just to have that in this country. So intolerant of differences. Mm-hmm whether they be ethnic or religious or sexual or regional or... Right, that's true. So, well, you moved on to, was it Boston University where you got a degree in physical therapy? Yeah. And you became a physical therapist at first. Right, uh, well, I, in, when I was in college, I was uh, uh, selected along with this other woman to write and direct a review of sorts. Why they selected me, I don't know. I loved sports. I did. That's what I did in high school, and um, and and I had so much pleasure in doing it. I thought this is what I really want to do. What kind of sports did you do? Oh me? Yes. Oh, I did everything. I was uh, New England fencing champ for three years. I was on the New England riflery team. <laughs> I was captain of the tennis team. I played basketball. I did track and field. I was a ping pong champ at, at the high school. I mean, it was like, I just loved it. It was a number of things. It was, it was the way I, I showed and proved that I was not as good as, but better than all these other groups. Were you very competitive? Groups. Yeah, very, very competitive. <laughs> I wanted to win, prove I was better, all this stuff. And it was a sexual outlet, I think, also as well for me, so... <laughs> it was. How? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you can get really very aggressive. aggressive. And, yeah. Okay. Have you ever seen the New York women's team play? Yeah. I don't know. How many of you have seen that team? You Which know? team? The women. The, 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 the Patriots, right? Oh, right, right, right. I mean, the first time I saw them, I went to see them. They came out on the, on the court, and I just started to cry. Oh. Even now thinking about it, because they were able to dribble the length of the court. We could take three steps. That was it. And it was over. They blew the whistle on you. And thinking about it back, I thought, what did they think? We would lose our virginity if we did went a little bit further? It was amazing to me, the rules that they had for women's sports. You know, and there were these women like... Their bodies were like moving and they were aggressive and they weren't hiding how aggressive and competitive they were. No, it was they like, don't. 
It no, was fabulous. It was just great. That is that is one thing with women women's sports these days is they it's just I think great. it's opened up and they are allowed to be aggressive and and you not know, ashamed to show and it. Not ashamed to show it. That was the thing, right? I thought was so great. So then, but you were a physical therapist for a long oh, yeah, time, yeah. and to and you. Well, I, I I realized that I didn't want to continue. Right. Uh, uh, so I, I I thought, well, how am I? There was no money to start again and so I, I um it was my mother always with the reality check that if I wanted it I'd had to go and make it happen myself so if you wanted to do what if I wanted to go back to school that they could not start okay. yeah with drama mm-hmm. so I I looked around and I and I could get a scholarship from the National Foundation from infantile paralysis and so I I did that and I and um I went out and I did four polio epidemics just at the very end there and I saved my money and went back to graduate school. So that, which is also very interesting for that time. Oh, oh, how old were you at that time? In your 30s, was it? Oh, no. no you weren't I, that old? I was, like, when I went back to... When you went back to graduate school. Because oh, that's very see, brave and aggressive. 22, 23, 20, about, about 25. Because I, I, I first went back at, uh, to uh, Columbia. Mm-hmm. I first I went to Columbia. And then, um, then it looked like I was going to get married. Right. And then that didn't happen, and it fell apart when I was doing the, one of the epidemics down in Texas. And then I didn't know what to do, so I stayed and went to SMU in the graduate school in um, comparative lit. I thought I'd be a writer. I dropped all that acting, directing, and I thought I'd be a writer. And I got a lot of support for it, and then... My father almost died, and I had to come back. And then there was another. Then I thought it was. I was on Martha's Vineyard. I thought I would go and I would write there. And but I wasn't doing. I wasn't writing at all. I was just fooling around a lot. And then um, there was all this stuff. Oh, we need therapists, therapists, and terrible. The worst epidemic was in Boston. And so I decided. Well, I should go do that. And then by the end of that, I decided I'm going back to school. Uh-huh. I'm going to. Cont- I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I don't want to write. Uh-huh. You know, and I so I, then I applied to go back to uh-huh. the graduate school. So a little time thing. I graduated from graduate school when I was about twenty-seven, because uh-huh. all of this semester at Columbia, year at SMU. Right, 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 right. And then uh, was it soon after that that you went to New York? No, no. A group of us started a theater. Uh-huh. We. Um, Which one? The actors. Well, we did one season of stock at Rangeley, Maine. In which one night we had 12 people and six left at intermission. <laughs> it was quite a place. We put $300 down, each of us, for room and board. And then he was supposed, this guy, producer, was supposed to pay us. Uh, we were there a week and he called us and said, come home. He had, he had invested all our money in a show in Boston and it failed. And it was, it was my first understanding of why you had to be a get into a union. You needed a union because the Barracudas were out. And, um, but then we decided to stay and, and we ate tuna fish casseroles and peanut butter jelly sandwiches all summer. We, but that was my first season. And then the following year after we finished the second year of graduate school, we did a season at Buzzards Bay and then we decided to stay together, and we went to Boston and found a loft and 
fixed up a theater, and we called ourselves the Actors' Company. And then we moved the following year. We were on Charles Street at Beacon Hill. And when we moved so that people would know who we were, we took the name the Charles Street Playhouse. That's, so oh, that's what okay. I meant. It's the same place. Right, right, right. We just moved. And then these people that wanted to supposedly help us and we were going to keep an ensemble, just that wasn't their intention. And slowly people started to leave. And I was the last one that left. And I, I was very angry. And one night I stole a lot of period clothes. <laughs> and I raced out of the building and... And they spotted me. And one of the guys was with the mafia because the building, that new building was owned by the mafia. Don't even ask. I mean, that's, that, therein lies a big tale, but never mind. So I, I, get into, I, I get outside with these costumes because I, I didn't know what to do. I was so angry. They had screwed us, the money they promised us. Not, oh, the parts, oh, over, over and over and over. So I get home and I call up my cousin, Michael Dukakis, who he was a senator at the time. Yes, yes. yes. And I said, Michael, this is what I've done. And I said, I just left the costumes. And the guy is, one guy's mafia, the other's a lawyer, you know. And I, and I said, what do you think I should do? And there was a pause. He said, time to go to New York, Olivia. <laughs> so, Pack so, up your period costumes and yeah, go to New York. <laughs> so I did. I yeah. sold the period costumes and oh, okay. I, I sent everybody a little money because they'd all been screwed so badly. And then I went to New York. Yeah. So, and okay. with that good feeling, I came to New York. <laughs> what was that like then, going to New York? I mean, I came to New York with $57 in my pocket. That summer before I came, I uh, worked in the Candid Company. Candid cup, what the hell is in there? I can't remember it. Candy cupboard Candy. chocolate factory. Ooh. Much like the stuff that was in, um, y you know, that, that thing um, that they did in the television series. I love Lucy. I love Lucy. I love Lucy. Yes, yes, yes. That actually happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was like... The chocolates got ahead of me, and I so I would run down and push the boxes, and and, and the guy who's running it, no, stop pushing boxes. He screamed, no, you you had to like keep the pace, and I didn't know what to do. Did you know what I did? I fainted. I pretended to faint on the boxes, and the guy is screaming. Get her off the boxes! Get her! I mean, he didn't give a shit about me or anything. There was no union. And all of these women that worked there in this cold, because the chocolates have to be cold, you know. So by the time I was there a month, I decided that I wasn't going to be an actress. I was going to be a union organizer. <laughs> I was so angry at the way these women were treated. And they were like a city block you had to go and then downstairs to the bathroom, and you only had 10 minutes. And these women, 50, 60-year-old women, running so they could go to the bathroom. It was like, oh, the rage in me just didn't stop. You know, was, <laughs> that was New York, right? That was, that was, Boston. That's how, oh, no, that's that was Boston still stuff. Boston. Oh. So finally I managed to put together $57. Yeah. And, so I came, and then I came to New York and stayed with a friend of mine. She had an apartment and. She let me sleep on her couch, and you started auditioning and things like that. I had one pair of heels, and then, and I think it was about three months. They they were like, it was like really, 
I remember thinking, well, this will work. They're okay. It's just another style. I just have to set my head to the idea that it's another style. You yeah, know? literally pounding the paper. Yeah, like, well, yeah. So um, when did you meet your husband? How did that happen? Oh, that was a while after that. Um, I, um, I got my first job in a, a play called The Breaking Wall with Joanna Merlin. I don't know if you, many of you know her. She, I think she still does a lot of casting. And she teaches a Michael Chekhov de techniques. Uh, she was in that with Alan and Sarah, who was also part of my the acting class that I, that I, I was taking with Peter Cass, who was the teacher that had meant the most, has meant the most to me. He was at Boston University when I was there, and then he taught in New York, and Alan was in the show, and he called me up New Year's Eve and said, oh, you want to come over there, fire this woman, and it's a little Italian part, which was nice, and, but I went over and got the part and then proceeded to realize that working in New York was not going to be at all like working with an actor's company at the Charles Playhouse. It was, not, it was like really pretty deadly. There was no real effort on everybody's part to be helpful to each other. Mm -hmm. There certainly was no, no, we weren't homogenous in the way in which we looked and thought about acting and certainly not in the process that we all shared. And the director was slightly demented. I mean, I never, <laughs> you know, it took me a while to actually believe that, but I, I finally understood that I was to pay no attention to him <laughs> and, and, that I, and that I really just had to figure it out. But I, I couldn't appear that I wasn't paying no attention. And so the dance began. How do, I, how do you survive them? You know, it was like that kind of thing. Was your husband in that play? No. No. Alan was in that play. Okay. And, um, oh, wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, who, with his wife, produced the first off-Broadway show I played a lead in, which was called The Opening. Guardino. Jerry Guardino. None of you will know him. And uh, his wife, Fran Malice, a Canadian, another yes. Canadian, directed it. And uh, she was great. And uh, it, it went well, and I w it was well-received, and, uh, and I was well-received. It was a time when that kind of a play could make it. Mm -hmm. you, it. That kind of a play would never make it today. It was about immigrants trying to survive on the Lower East Side, mm -hmm. et cetera, except these were Italians. And um, people were interested in those stories. At that time, nobody's... Today, if those stories make it at all, they make it on TV. And even then, it's like people have seen that story over and over again. Right. George, I mean, now they function and work with, say, George Lopez. I don't know how many of you, mm -hmm. see, you know, or the, uh, the, the, uh, the girl that's... Uh, the fat, what's the name of that one? Right. What? Oh, ugly Betty. Yeah, Ugly Betty. Right. They function like that. Right. They're, they're a little different. They have more edge. Mm -hmm. It's a little, you know. It's, mm -hmm. Right. It's more of a, also the comedy yeah. element. And, um, so, okay. So how did you meet your husband? <laughs> I'm determined to find well, him. Well, he came to read for this play, The Opening of oh, a Window. okay. And uh, prior to that, I had been, I'd gotten a job working with the Phoenix Theater, which was down on 2nd Street and about 12th Street. There's a big cineplex there right now. Uh -huh. Second Avenue and 12th Street, and I had gotten, um, I was working in the subscription department, and then Ed Heffernan, who I went to school with, started the Actors Company. He was in the company at the Phoenix, 
and they had a, they started a touring company, and he suggested me and Nick Kepros, who a wonderful, wonderful actor who later I did Titus Andronicus with in the park. He was the director. He hired me, and and that was my first, that was my equity card. Right, that was major. And I, I we traveled. Uh, we did uh, the Chekhov, uh, the Boar, uh, Shaw's um, Caesar and Cleopatra, and Shakespeare's um, Taming of the Shoe. Mm -hmm. These are the three plays that we did, and I was very grateful to have that job, mm -hmm. and it was just really wonderful. And so, the, and I don't know who saw me or didn't see me, but. I was, oh, Jerry knew me from that play, and he, and he wanted me to come in and understudy, and he said, he, they paid me to come in and audition people, to just be, and, and I set my mind to getting that part. I thought, I can right. show them I can do it better than whoever they had. And uh, Louis came in then and read, and he was in a show at the time playing um, Achilles in a comedy. I don't remember the name of it. And, uh, and he was really just wonderful. Mm -hmm. There's a great spirit and humor and a wonderful, wonderful-looking man. And, uh, and uh, uh, they didn't hire him because the husband was supposed to die at the end of the first act from tuberculosis. And he didn't look like he was going to die. <laughs> <laughs> and then I saw him in the village walking around with people. And I thought, hmm, I kept my... And then when we were doing um, Ennui's Medea and the guy playing it decided he'd had it with New York, wanted to go to L.A. The director said, do anybody need to suggest? I said, yeah, what about Louis Zorich? Mm -hmm. So that's how, kinda... <laughs> so that's how you got to know yeah. Did you uh, Did you have a long courtship? Did you marry? Six months we were married. Yeah. And um, so how long have you been married now? 44. Wow. Congratulations. Thanks, that's thanks. unusual for actors. Um, <laughs> I, I read a story about... Um, you know, you were talking about how competitive you were, and you wanted to be the best actress. Still am. Better. Oh, Still, is that right? Yeah, it doesn't go away like that. Better than anyone that I But I have more control over it now. It doesn't run me around, I know, <laughs> oh, as is much that right? as it did. Yeah, that's a, that's a difference. There was the play you did, Long Day's Journey Into Night, which your brother <laughs> uh, directed, right? Yeah, one of the times I did it, he directed it. And yeah. But wasn't it with your husband as well? Yes. And there was that... Uh, do you, do you know the story I'm yeah, thinking yeah, about? Yeah, Go yeah. ahead. <laughs> it's about the sort of the competitive nature trying to Well, actually, the bit. first time I was offered the part, I said I couldn't do I said, no, 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 no. I said, I, I can't play this part. Jane Cronin, who was also part of this initial company in Boston, mm -hmm. I said, she should do it. She's Irish. She had this great head of red hair. You know, she's very proud of her hair. She talks about it. <laughs> I said, and she should do it. She's wonderful, blah, blah, blah. And the, the director said, well, I would really like you. And I was at the time seeing a therapist, and he said, well, he said, well what, tell me about this character. And I told him about the drugs. And I'd had a two-year episode with drugs. And he said, why are you giving this part away? It seems to me you know about this. Mm -hmm. He said, why don't you do, want to do something you know about? It never occurred to me. Yeah. I just thought, oh, I can't possibly. I didn't realize that the reason I didn't want to get to it it was too close. Well, yeah, and I was afraid. And, and indeed, after the, the second night on the way to the theater, I had an anxiety attack. Is that right? Yeah, I yeah. felt like, well, I did it once. I proved I could do it. Why do I have to do it again? I said, right. Was that that kind of thing? But the, the one you're talking about, the story. So the, it's interesting that that play, 
you know, when you do plays over and over again, they come at certain parts of your life, and then your life informs what you see in the play and how you move through it. Mm-hmm. It's uh, so I can, you can track yourself like I did Mother Courage four times and the Cherry Orchard five times, and you know, it goes on and on. There's, because I, I like to repeat things because I, because it, it does change through mm-hmm. the years. Mm-hmm. But in this instance, what happened was that um, Louis was not looking at me in the first scene, and I, I said to him, well, "Louis, I said I can't see your eyes. You're always every time I look at you, you're turning away." And, and he didn't say anything. And I, and I said, "So I mean, I don't know how to handle this." I turned to my brother, who's director, and he says, "Well, I don't know what to tell you any more than I know what to do when you try to run the stage." <laughs> so we started to have a fight. And my man, my husband is just sitting there letting these two Greeks <laughs> scream their heads off at each other. And finally, uh, my brother said something to me that was really, I thought, important. He said, um, the truth is that you only really play with somebody when you think that what they're doing is right. You, if they're not doing what you think they should be doing, you look like you're playing with them. But, in the, but behind your eyes, you're not. I can, he could... He could see that, I mean, because right. he knows me so well. Mm-hmm. And it really stunned me, and mm-hmm. it really changed my acting. And you want to know something? He doesn't remember saying it. Ah. It is the most amazing thing. <laughs> something like that that was so incredible for me was, was for him just part of, you know, what was going on. Right, right. Yeah, it, I, I had a little quote of exactly that. When you're trying to be better than everyone else, you aren't playing with them. You aren't playing with somebody. It says you won't do it unless they're playing by your rules instead right. of accepting what they're doing as though well, that's the character. You do that. And and right. then Austin Pendleton, who I've worked with a lot, we've acted together, directed each other. We were in a play together, and uh, I was complaining about some actor, and he turned to me and he said, you don't really want to tell another actor what to do, do you? I thought, yeah, I do want to tell this actor. <laughs> but I understood what he was saying. See, I wanted to win, and if that actor wasn't going to help me win, I wasn't going to play with them and or I was going to try to change it. So that's what I mean by that competitive thing is... Does it run you, or do you, do you get some control over it? And do you feel like you have yeah, I control do. over it? First it, of all, I recognize it much, much mm-hmm, faster mm-hmm. when it's beginning to operate mm-hmm, and I can mm-hmm. do something, yeah. Because um, I read that when you sort of had that realization, um, everything sort of seemed to be set in motion for Moonstruck. I don't know if you feel the same way, but it was like, as a result of this revelation, you, you sort of became, you, you stopped trying to prove things to people. And then there was this string of events that... No, I stopped to trying to control people. Right. C- control and... You know, the interesting thing is that if you... It's not only... The next step is, after that, is not controlling the audience. Mm-hmm. That's the big one. Mm-hmm. Because we take so much pride in... People say, well, they held the audience at the palm of their hands. Mm-hmm. got them to laugh. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. they cried. They were silenced. I mean, all these things <laughs> that actors live off of, you know. And so when, if you stop trying to do that, 
if you just say, look, an audience can have whatever experience it wants. Mm -hmm. I'm going for this. Mm -hmm. You know, and they laugh when they want. They do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. And I am up here doing what I think I need to do. And that was the big thing for me mm -hmm. was to let to let go of, of that. And that I have to, we were doing an evening of Jacques Brel and I was singing a song. Uh, you know, I don't know how many of you know the Bill Bow song, that old Bill Bow moon. Da 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 da. It's some it's a song about what it was like when they were younger and Bill, and they were in this bar and all this was happening. And it was directly to the audience. And this is what the audience was doing. They were mm. They were like this recognition. They were like nodding and whatever. And I, something happened when I saw that. I thought, I mean, they know, they know everything. What, what am I trying to do here? I mean, inform them, enlighten them. That's crazy. That's not what this is about. Because they know everything. If they didn't know everything, how could you do it? I mean, what what I began to understand was that we uh, we actors of a night with each other make bring to the fore or and or articulate an aspect of our humanity that the play that's in the play contradictions about it challenges about it. it's whatever you want you can make your laundry list and the audience is reminded of is it's evoked in the audience it's they, it's called an aesthetic but that's because what that word really means is awakening so that particular aesthetic of performing is about awakening mm -hmm. you know now this sounds all very nice saying it here but I mean, I learned this like spoonful by spoonful. I mean, one little drop would, would drop in, you know. <laughs> and then I would talk about it to the people that meant a great deal to me. That Because that, you usually feel silly and stupid talking this way about acting to most people. So it has to be people that you really, uh, who know your work, who understand where you're at, who, who care that... You, you continue to somehow evolve and right that understand that the whole process is an evolution that it is a process it, and that it is a process yeah and it's a process that I think as actors we're always grasping for trying to and never quite reaching well the fortunate thing about it is that we're constantly evolving as people mm -hmm. so acting then becomes a, a way a path to, for this to happen right you know right so after 30-odd years of being basically in the theater, right, you won the role in Moonstruck and ended up with an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. And so this, all of a sudden, you were in your 50s or so, and you were a star. Is that well, right? What was I don't that know like? that I would call myself a star, but I certainly was known. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, people began to know me in my work. What was that like? Well, that was, uh, some parts of it were great. Uh, the idea that I was now getting scripts. <laughs> I, did, I wasn't auditioning. They were just calling up and saying, is she free? Blah, 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 this kind of that. Right, thing. right. That I was getting good money. Our daughter was going to college on credit cards at the time. So this was really important that this happened. I mean, we were, we were really seriously in a lot of financial trouble because my husband had had a terrible automobile accident. 
and hadn't been able to work for five years. They said he would never walk. I mean, it was the recovery was difficult and painful for him, for all of us. So with this, it happened about 10 years ago, uh, 10 years earlier. So this really changed the economics of our family, mm-hmm. also the, the, the scrounging and the worrying, and because we had three children, and all of that kind of got lifted. And you can imagine for yourselves what a tremendous relief that was. Yes. Tremendous. And you know, and also the fact that it was later in your life. I mean, yeah. you see over and over again young actors becoming mega millionaires <laughs> and superstars and all that other stuff. But it, it you know gives what, us faith. You know what? They asked my mother, did you think your daughter would ever grow up <laughs> to, to be a celebrity? She says, no, I never thought she was pretty enough. <laughs> she actually said, because in her day, you had to be Theda Barra. You know what I mean? She didn't. She, did, she meant I didn't have those looks that she associated right. with the movies. You know, right, so right, she right. said that my brother and I couldn't stop laughing. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> true to the end, Alec, true to the end. Here she goes. Um, what was it like working on Steel, Magno- Steel Magnolias with all those wonderful actresses? Shirley MacLaine. It was, it was really interesting and sometimes a lot of fun. And- yeah. Sometimes sad and was sometimes because very interesting. I felt like I learned something from everybody. You know, in, in two weeks, I'm going out to do a film with Shirley MacLaine. Oh, you are? Yeah, after oh. all this time. Wonderful. Yeah. Did you remain friends and stay in touch? Or? Yes, we have. And she's, mm-hmm. I've, I've gone to see her when, when she was still doing her act in Vegas. And right. she came to see me in this one-woman show that I did. And uh so we've, you yeah, know. S- stayed in touch. Yeah. Um, I I always thought that uh, Moonstruck and Steel Magnolias are about very strong, independent women that you know that are the perspective of these women is is really well. It's from a woman's perspective more than maybe from a man's. I mean, do you think that's true? And how important it is is it for you to find roles like that? Well, I don't know. Of course, they were both written by men. <laughs> yeah, um, Moonstruck was John Patrick Shanley. You know, there's a line in that thing where uh, he, it's just a scene with John Mahoney, for those of you that remember this movie. Oh, oh my God, they keep playing it over and over again. It's amazing. The, he, she says she won't go home with him that night because she says, I know who I am. That line, even today, I mean, I think about it was about a month ago, actually, a woman came up to me and said, I want to thank you for that. You know, I mean, I didn't write the line, obviously, but I, I, I mean, I knew what it was about. So that, that line seemed to have meant a great deal. Mm-hmm. Really resonated with yeah, women. I don't know that I would, you see, I never thought, I never think in terms of well, are these women strong or whatever? I, I um, there's something in them that I I respond to. 
mm-hmm. that uh, what I like is anything that has a journey. Mm-hmm. And, and if it doesn't have it really explicitly, I try to finagle it. <laughs> and I try I to negotiate it. Right. So that like you there was it's obvious it. in, in this like movie. Like it's obvious away in, from her in, that uh, it's like, it's in the text. Right. You know, I, you don't have to do all that. Right. But, um, and it's in, it's in Moonstruck. Steel Magnolias is harder. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a harder thing. But, I mean, I played it. I wish that it had been more explicit. But. Um, you did a play called The Trojan Women. And I did Hecuba. And you did Hecuba. Which are the two plays that, uh, that Euripides wrote about Hecuba. I read that the Trojan, Trojan women, you, you somehow, as a result of doing that play, you sort of discovered a new spirituality. Well, I, yeah, um, that word is a very, right? How many times you hear that word and you think, <laughs> what, what are you talking about? Um, what, it, 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 I, people call that spirituality. I tend not to think about it or want to think about it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, Hecuba has this thing where she's on the ground after she's tried all these measures to convince that when she's, she has lost the final, the bloodline is over. The, the grandson, they bring him, excuse me, dead. And she's on the ground, banging the ground and yelling, do you see? Do you hear? So my brother and I had done our own translation, and and we had been like three months at it, for heaven's sakes. And and there we are, I mean, in rehearsal. And I'm, I said to I said, what am I doing here? Do you see? I said, he said, well, it's the ancestors. You're, you're yelling to the ancestors. I said, but what can they do? I said, well, what is all this about? And he said, well, it's ancestor worship. And I said, I said but what am I playing? What, what do I think I can achieve by doing this? Why is this in the play? I couldn't figure it out. So we said, oh, so we had a little, little thing, and he suggested I go read The Golden Bow, which I'd already read. And so, uh, so I was kind of like thinking, what am I going to do about this? And I went across the street to a bookstore called Yesterday's Bookstore. I was looking for opening night gifts that were really cheap, like books and stuff. And I found this book that I thought was going to be for the set designer because it had wonderful plates, plates about Greek, this, that, and the other thing. And um, I brought it home and I was going to wrap, and then I started to read it. And it was called Perseus and the Gorgon. And I started to read it, and I got more and more interested in it. And these Asiatics came into Mesopotamia, and the, they raised the temples, and people moved ahead of them to the east as they came from the west. What is this woman talking about? She was an archaeologist. And she had found on uh, Cyprus the... Uh, uh, the, she believes that, that the, stat, the head of the Gorgon that Perseus brought back to the mainland, the one that Athena has in her shield, was from the temple at Cyprus. And, 
and that Perseus came in, raised the temples. Of course, they they murdered, uh, tortured, raped all the priests and priestesses, and buried in oblivion and covered with silence the teachings of the Great Mother. And that phrase, buried in oblivion and covered with silence, I thought, what teachings? Who is this Great Mother? And why did they have to be buried in oblivion and covered with silence? I was, it kind of grabbed my heart. I couldn't figure what the hell this was all about. And someplace I knew that it had something to do with the Trojan women. I I understood that. Mm -hmm. So I started to look for books. I didn't know where to go, what to do. I would go to religion, history, archaeology. And then one day I was in a Buddhist bookstore. I just went in, and and, um, I was trying to look through the shelves. And I knocked one book off, and I picked it up, and I looked at it and said, When God Was a Woman, I thought by Merlin Stone. So I thought, well, the teachings of the great mind, I thought, maybe, why don't I get this book? And it just blew my mind. I just couldn't believe it, what was in it. I would read it, and I'd come running to my husband and say, listen to this. Listen to what happened 2,000 before Christ. Listen to what happened 1,000, 500. Look what the Greeks did. Look what the Romans did. You know, look what the Jews did, the, the, uh, the, uh, the Muslims, the Christians, the Protestants. Look what they did to this thing between men and women. I was like, it was like I got bitten by something. And then it became a passion. Prehistory became a total passion. Oh, is that right? Yeah, oh, wow. it became a total passion. I had to like know more and more, you know, and my husband said, well, what is this book? And I said, well, it's about that. He said, but didn't you read about that? I said, but you don't understand. Everybody's got a different view on this. And I was like, you know, I became tremendously involved in it. And I, and once when, when I was with the whole theater in Montclair, New Jersey, and by, by the way, this was all by myself. I was like, I didn't tell anybody. I, I thought, well, I'm a little nuts. Nobody else is doing this. I didn't know that for some reason, it's like that story about the monkeys with the, with the sweet potatoes. You know that monkey, the story about monkeys at the ocean washing, oh, right, right, finding right, in, the salt water, in the salt water. And then yeah. in, the, in the next two years, all the monkeys in they like a 5,000 mile area are washing their sweet potatoes or something. How did that happen? Well, it seems that a lot of women were doing this, and a lot of groups were happening, and, and, and organizations were starting all over. This was the 80s. This had already started, though, like in the 50s. There were women out there when it wasn't safe to be out there with this stuff, believe me. And, um, but, you know, I got terribly involved with it, and, and slowly I began to. Finally, one day I had the courage to try to find Merlin Stone, and she happened to be sitting right here in New York. And I mean, that was like a revelation. And, and she took me to different um, events. Donna Reed did a, um, a dance thing about the, the daughter, the mother, the crone, which are the three demarcations of a woman's life. And, and then I was watching that. I was thinking, well, the problem with this is the conflict. The life is in the transitions not when you arrive at it. So then I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and put a piece together about how do you get from a girl when you're a virgin, what is this transition to being sexually active? 
the transition to being married, to having children, to having no more menstrual periods, mm -hmm. to being what they call a crone, you know, a wise old woman. And, and one day when I was in the Rockefeller Dodge Foundation with this incredible man uh, who was give, kept giving us money every year at the theater, but, I mean, I had to go in and bleed over the earth to get it. But at any rate, <laughs> we... we uh, and, and, and as I walked out the door, he said to me, I was there for about an hour and a half, and he says, Olympia, Olympia, he said, what are you reading these days? I thought, I'm not going to tell him what I'm reading. He'll think I'm crazy. And then as I said, oh, well, and I thought, what the hell? He was the first one I told, except for my husband, of course. Who, so I, I turned and I said, this is what I'm reading. Then I was there for another hour, and he said, you figure out a way to put that on a stage, I'll give you money. It was the first time wow. somebody challenged me to do that, and so I did. I, I, I tried to put something together, and it was, was so that, it was a beginning of that. Voices of the Earth? Yeah, that, and out of that came Voices oh, of the Earth, and, and uh, the, the people, uh, Leslie Yvesian, how do you know her? She's an actress and a writer. She wrote Nine Armenians, Lovely Life, uh, A Lovely Day, uh, a whole bunch of plays. Uh, Joan McIntosh, who was with the original Schechter, I mean, they were, they were in it. Because everything we had to create from massive improvisation, so you needed uh, actors with a certain kind of sensibility uh, to do it. Um, and then out of that became, we decided to stay together and Voices of, we, this Voices of Earth started. Do you find that this sort of discovery, I hate to say Does this make any sense? I feel like, yeah, so. it, am I, I making sense to uh, Thank you for your reassurance. <laughs> Because you feel a little nuts with this stuff. No, Go ahead. No, it, it's fascinating because I, I wonder, does it affect your work? How yes. It, how, how so? I mean, how does it ground you? Does it ground you in your life or and in how? Uh, no, it does. I, ground, it's, it's, I don't know. I mean, I don't much look to be grounded. I don't look for that. I, I feel like uh, <laughs> I like being... Um, um, disorientated and I mean I think I'll, I think more stuff comes from that than mm -hmm. from being grounded and on top of it and of this and of that and the other thing mm -hmm. uh, it has affected my work uh, uh, first of all the way I see things and the way I understand things it has affected me deeply in the way I, I do workshops like I'm, we're going to do a, a workshop in July, I think it's at Intar, based, we're going to use theater exercises based on the Sumerian myth of the, of the descent of Inanna. The, there are, there are uh, the story there about accessing deeper, darker aspects of self that have been buried in oblivion and covered with silence. Mm -hmm. And that that, so that aspect of it happens, but I, I have a. I do. I never understood uh, what it is. Oh God. To feel with other women, a sisterhood, or those words, uh, and with all of this history, I, I, I feel that I am. My judgments are, I. Uh, then they're, they're not relevant anymore to me. They're not. They don't matter to me. I I can see 
women, and I can see how they handle being second-class citizens, how they handle silencing who they are, why they do that, how that happens to young girls and why that happens to them. I see why, how men then have to assume certain positions and, uh, you know, and points of view and stuff that... uh, that deprive them of aspects of who they are in a way of living. I mean, it's like, it's, and the judgments are gone. I think that's probably the the best way to say it. You said once, I think we're socialized. I think we women are are socialized out of being women, and we have to find our way back. Yeah. What what do you mean? But I think this is also true of men. I, I, don't I, disagree with that. I don't. I because think that it's also. But, they automatically fall into a yeah, position when the women take. There's a position. kind of a socialization that happens mm-hmm. that has to do with controlling us, mm-hmm. and it's about institutions maintaining power over people, mm-hmm. and um, whether it's the church, whether it's the government, whether it's the military. I mean, we there's a whole the methodology of education got totally changed in the in the 19th century because of the industrial revolution because of what was the what was needed for that they changed how they taught people in schools mm-hmm. because they had to do repetitive tasks I mean it's like an incredible thing if you start to read the history of it etc cetera, et cetera. that starts way back in the the burying of the right mother. so this yeah partly and for me I watched my mother and what she did and how she behaved, and I thought, I don't want to be like that. I want to be like my father. My father was reasonable. He seemed rational. He left the house. Mm-hmm. He wasn't imploding and exploding with all this stuff. Yeah. On the other hand, he wasn't being humiliated every day the way my mother was. Not that my father wanted to humiliate my mother. Yet was the way, as a Greek male, he behaved. That's what he had been taught. That's what he had seen. I saw my mother take it. It wasn't until years later after my father died. And one day I exploded with her. I said, because we never talked about it till then. And I said, why did you let him treat you that way? Right. Why didn't you stop it? Why didn't you leave him? And I'm crying and carrying on. And she, bless her heart, she just looked at me and she said, all right, now, darling, stop crying. She didn't defend herself. She didn't explain anything. She just didn't want me to be so wrought over by the whole thing. She was just blew me away. She absorbed it all herself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exploded out of it. It was like, but all when I was growing up, I mean, there were all this Mm -hmm. incredible behavior going on. And he would have, well, you know, your mother is, well, you see, my, the, the drill was that my mother was the nutty one. Mm -hmm. Right. Because she had feelings, mm-hmm. because she, she didn't, drive. and she, she didn't have. Desires. Well, she didn't have a right to defend herself and and alter the behavior. That's what a Greek, you know. It's like any of you who come from strong ethnic backgrounds with these kinds of traditions uh, know and understand what I'm talking about. But I also think it's common. I mean, I, I can relate to that with my own mother, okay. who was college-educated, very, yeah, very yeah, smart. Yeah. She married my father, 
they moved to Edmonton and she became a housewife. And she was incredibly frustrated. And she wasn't a great mother. She was a hard mother. This is being taken, right. isn't it? Oh. <laughs> right, 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 right. She was she was she wasn't warm and affectionate. Right, either was mine. Thing. She was cold and steely. You know, and you know but what they taught us? Pardon me? They taught they taught us to be willful. Yes. To be tenacious. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of these For things. Sure. Yeah, that's what my mother. And and she said she is angry to this day <laughs> that she wasn't allowed. She felt that she wasn't allowed Why? to explore everything that she could But she explore. didn't take it. it, it but well, that's what you did. You took right, it. Right, right. Yeah, that's I see, the difference. It's interesting. It's a, it's a lesson that you learn as a yeah. daughter. You watch your, your, your mother particularly. Well, I rejected my mother. Mm-hmm. I spent that whole first part of my life. Mm-hmm. I, I, I rejected my mother in the whole first part of my life And well. then I spent <laughs> the rest of my life trying to get back to her. That's trying to exactly connect with the women. Road I'm on now yeah. as well. I understand. I, I understand. And I, I empathize so with my mother, you know, because she was suppressed. She was a suppressed woman, and um, but she did create a willful daughter, and she yeah. was willful in her own way as well. Um, uh, yes, <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about. <laughs> You mentioned earlier that one of your favorite projects was Tales of Tales of the City, right. the miniseries. Tell us a little bit about that and your character, because yeah, it's a the woman. Well, it was a woman who had been a man. She was oh, a okay. transsexual, <laughs> and um, I mean, everybody wanted this part, and I got it. I mean, it was like I, I you know. I was like, and part of it was because Armistead's partner at the time woke up one morning and saw my face and said, Olympia Dukakis. And so, I don't know, the God, the great mother was looking out for me. <laughs> and um, that was, it was just great. Yeah, I read that he said it wasn't so much casting, but destiny. Yeah, that's, did he say that? That's <laughs> yeah. Armistead. And, and the character is described as a dope smoking, ambiguously gendered, Mother figure. <laughs> She's not ambiguous at all. She's a woman. Okay. She doesn't. She is absolutely. I. 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 But she I, used to be a man. Yeah, she used to be. But she was a woman. Mm-hmm. Buried in that body, silenced, was a woman. Uh huh. Right. And uh, I know that when I spoke to this therapist, who was a gender therapist, they, I said, "You." I said, "I read as much as I could because there wasn't a tremendous amount out about him." Mm-hmm. I said, you have to find me somebody who knows about this. And so I had a meeting with this doctor, this woman, 6'3", <laughs> walks in, talk like this. Hello, Olympia. How are you? And I, she sat down, and I realized, of course, that she was a transsexual. And I, I, and I said to her, I've read about it, and so I know how painful it is physically, psychologically, socially, culturally. I mean, it's a, it's a nightmare. It was a nightmare at that time for people to go through. And I said, what was it that you wanted so much that made you do this? And this is what this woman said to me. All my life I yearned for the friendship of women. Well, it devastated me. I was like... <laughs> You know, that's what it was. She wanted a connection with women. She felt that all the time that she couldn't give voice to that. Mm. 
she couldn't, that there was a part of her as a, there was a part of her that was not realized, had been silenced. And I real, and at the end of the conversation, I realized that there was a part of me as a woman that had been silenced. This is before all of this other stuff I'm talking to you about. <laughs> I understood that all women yearn to bring forward something of themselves as women that seems not available, accessible, not a right, they don't have a right to, it's not appropriate, blah, 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 find your own vocabulary for this. And and so that's what I connected with, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, was a, it was just great. I always felt like when I grew up, I wanted to be like, the character's name was Anna Madrigal. I wanted to be the way she was. She seemed to have such a, a willingness to tolerate differences and contradictions where... I always tend to, well, what was it this or is it this? No, it's both. Uh-huh, okay. How do I? <laughs> there is, uh, you did a, a one-woman show called Rose. Mm. And, um, Thank you, you saw that. Oh, great. You know, uh, Martin Sherman, who wrote it, he, he is best known for Bent, um, he said something similar about after he finished writing Rose, he yeah. immediately thought of you. I know, again. I thought that was... Now, Destiny. Was, yeah, again. Yeah. Um, you opened it in London, right? Six months I was there. Wow. We now, did it in rep. What was that like? A one-woman monologue. Yeah, that, was, an, no, that uh, was a terror. Break it That all. was a terror. Yeah. The stress was so bad, I got a retinal aneurysm. Yeah. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know that I got it from that. Wow. Yeah. It really was something. It was 74 pages we started off with, top to bottom, back to back. And straight through, no break, Yeah. Right? Well, that's what initially. Right. But then she cha the director changed it, and we did, a, we did an act break. Mm -hmm. uh, and at first, I didn't think I could memorize it. Mm -hmm. I thought, nobody can do this. Who can do this? I can't do this. And <laughs> I would jump up and say to my husband, oh, that's it, I'm not doing this. <laughs> and I'm calling my agent, and he would say, well, maybe you should sleep and wait, see if you feel the same tomorrow. And right, right, right. Of course, and by tomorrow, I, I felt, oh, well, maybe I can do it. Yeah. Then just holding it, holding the whole woman's life. But what a wonderful story. Can you tell us just a little bit about it? Well, she's uh, Rose herself, you mean. Right. She just, it's, it's well, her telling it, her life story. It was basically. commissioned by the National to commemorate the millennium. And uh, they were doing this one, and they were doing um, Merchant of Venice. Mm -hmm. Because they, they wanted to tap into this, this experience of the Jews in the 20th century. They wanted to do that. So we ran in rep, The Virgin of Venice and Rose. And um, she, uh, Rose's people say that, well, she's a survivor, she's a this, she's a that. But I, I never thought of her that way. I, I always thought of her as somebody who did not want to, Surviving wasn't enough for Rose. She wanted to prevail every place mm -hmm. that she wanted to. And um, so she starts in a shtetl in the Ukraine, moves to Warsaw, the war breaks out. She gets married, has a child. Uh, the child gets shot by a Ukrainian soldier just as a, just, she sees her just, take, you know, 
the husband, she doesn't know what happens to him. She survives in the sewers, which is an interesting, um, you know, what happened in the sewers is a whole other thing. And uh, comes out, goes to, um, tries to get to Israel, is on the exodus, meets an American sailor. They, he eventually, they can't get into Israel because of the British mandate. They go back to Europe. He asks her to marry. She, she was like, by this time, numb. She, she says, I, if, if, um, I, if, if she married him, it was only her body that would go. She, it did, her body didn't bring love with it. She didn't have that. She goes to America. They, I mean, it goes on and on and on. And, but what's moving, what's going on with this woman is that she's sitting shiver for, and you don't know who she's sitting shiver for. And this effort to look at her life and to see it and understand it and to, and to deal with the contradictions is what pushes her through the whole thing. Because just before the play begins, she has found out that her grandson living in Israel has shot a nine-year-old Palestinian girl, which is how old her daughter was when she, her daughter was shot. And she cannot come to terms with that. And she has a big fight with her son. She, the only way she can do it is to sit shiva for this Palestinian girl. And her son is outraged that she's doing this. What about all the Jews that have been killed in the argument? And, and this argument, she, she plays both sides in this argument. And, you know, and, 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 and what's interesting is that the play ends not with a resolution, but with an acknowledgement that we're all living with these contradictions, which is exactly what we're doing. So last year I kind of made a little tour with it. And what, what is interesting to me is that the play is even more relevant today than it was when we, we, we did it in 2000 at the National. And, and then we brought it to New York and mm -hmm. stuff like that. It's an extraordinary piece of writing. So, I... We, yeah, well, see, we're tired. My life just goes on. It's exhausting. <laughs> but it wasn't boring. I, I said that before. I can't. I'm going to talk about my life for an hour and a half. Oh, my God. But now you seem to be as busy as you've ever been. Um, are, you, are you satisfied with the way your life has unfolded? And, and what, uh, you know, what do you want to accomplish in the future? Am I satisfied? Well, there are things that are not satisfactory, that's true. Others are. Um, the thing, you know, when I had this theater in, in New Jersey, a regional theater, they called the whole theater, for 19 years, I did a lot of hustling. I raised a lot of money. We were always putting together seasons and this and that. And what happened was, I, before that, I... I I couldn't hustle for myself. Mm -hmm. I learned to hustle. Mm -hmm. and, and, but now, what it is, I mean, people say, oh, everybody complains there are no parts, you're always working. Well, uh, it's not that I'm always acting. It's that I'm always hustling. Mm -hmm. And um, some 
some days I wake up and I, and I think, how long am I going to do this? How long am I going to just keep? Not, not, it's like the idea that anybody's going to give you anything. Right. Forget it. You've just got to keep this hustling going, creating projects for yourself, whether they be because you're excited about them or because you're terrified of them or whatever it is, and working with playwrights and f film people, etc. I mean, it's like that's what I do. I, 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 this, I, I think the thing that I've learned is that you have to, as an actor, take total responsibility for everything. Everything. Not, uh, not only for your growth, your continued growth after you get out of school, but for your jobs. Don't wait for agents. Don't wait for anyone. Just keep working. Keep doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's you, you. Don't wait. Don't wait for somebody to give you anything. Start a theater. Start a reading group. Start your own discipline. Just, just if 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 you love acting, mm -hmm. and see it as your way of living or whatever, and you got to take the whole thing. You got to just and not complain about it in the business this and the business that. It's. That and a token will get you in the sun. <laughs> Thank you. That was wonderful. Um, I was going to end with a quote of yours uh, that you sort of touched on it before, but I'll just what say it you? again. I always look to move the character to places within herself where it becomes necessary to confront something, to learn something new. And you went on to say, most of us are not real eager to grow, myself included. We try to be happy, staying in the status quo. But if we're not willing to be honest with ourselves about what we feel, we don't evolve. Yeah, that's, I suppose, true. <laughs> yeah. You said it. <laughs> and a lot of other things, but that's one of the things. Yes, yeah. Yes, yeah. The hustle keeps going. It doesn't change. It's just you hustle for yourself. And that's not an easy thing for many actors to do. I understand that. So trying to figure that one out is mm -hmm. a big one. Um, Marcy asks, your theater project, Voices of Earth, right. uh, is, is it still in existence? And if yes, where is it located? If not, why? And either way, what was um, the root need for it? But we sort of touched on that. Right. And, and the, what, we're doing a workshop based on it. Mm -hmm. Leslie, Joan, and I are getting together in July at Intar and doing a workshop, but you got to be 30 years and over. I mean, <laughs> when we first started, I said, no, they have to be 50. <laughs> I said, I, I, I don't want women coming in here worried about what a man's going to say. I said, no, no, no. But now I've, 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 uh, I think things have changed. I think women, uh, younger women are more knowledgeable about the issues, et cetera. So right. mostly we do these because there are issues that we have that we want to be able to address. And, and uh, both Leslie and I, uh, there are things that, that we have. I mean, uh, to tell you, when you get to be my age, how you handle your sexuality is a real issue. And That's uh, touched on in this movie, Away From Her. Yeah. It's very interesting. And so... Unusual. So it's interesting. I, I want to do that. And, and, and then Leslie's uh, stuff is more with her work, how she feels so disempowered as a, a woman, a writer, 
today. Marilyn Bernard asks, having uh, seen you in, the, in, in your exquisite performance in Rose, how do you prepare for a one, uh, sorry, oh, one wow. something? Play? I'm telling you, that, that rehearsal period changed me as an actress. It totally changed me. First of all, because it all had to be towards the audience. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, for the, for, first of all, you have to take your, I had to take my shoes off because it was sitting shiver. So the director's, no, even starter. She says, Olympia, we have to figure out why you even sit down. So that was the first couple of days, <laughs> improvisations. Me trying to get to the bench, trying to figure out why I got to the bench. And then finally, it came to me why I went to the bench. Okay. So then I had to take my shoes off. And I, I felt so vulnerable without my shoes. I wouldn't give up my shoes. So I said, well, can I keep them in the first week? Okay. Then she would say, but now you've got to look out. It's all to the audience. And I was like, and I didn't want to do that. And she started to bring in people to make me look at them. And it was like a nightmare. Getting myself to get out to them. I had learned... 64 pages before I got there, because I knew I'd never get it in five weeks. I thought, it's too much. But it, it, the good thing about that was that I learned it logically, like, oh, I said this, well, that's why. Well, why do I say that, and why do I go to that? And I didn't, you know, and, and it felt like I had eaten the play. I literally ate it. That, and, and uh, uh, even, there was no interpretation at all. I just worked on it on the literal level of it, you know, and uh, because I, I thought, let me just get the lines. How am I going to get the lines I have to do just on the literal level? Mm -hmm. And and then, uh, then the first time I had I had a horrible experience again. The second night, I'm there. Um, she she insisted I had one of those things in my ears. So the first night I didn't even use it. I thought, look at me. <laughs> I did it. Second night, I'm like a page in, and I, I this was the experience. It was like a well. I, and my body went forward. I went, ah, and I pitched into a black well. I had no idea anything about the script. And I did something I never did. I looked up at the audience. I said, I'm up. There was nobody to save me. There was nobody to crunch. And I didn't know what to. And I got up, and I left the stage. The audience did not leave. I went to the stage manager, and she said, well, what's, nothing was coming through, and it was busted. So she, I said, well, you have to stand close to the curtain so that if I need the line, she said, okay, okay. And then I said to her, I said, okay, what should I do? Should I go back and talk to the audience? She said, no, just go in and sit down. The Brits go up a lot. Their uh, British audiences are used to it. They... <laughs> And the Brits laugh about it. The actors <laughs> laugh about it. The audience, you know, sits and listens to the lines coming in. I mean, it's a, they have a different relationship to theater than, than we do. So I went in, and, the, and, the, and I sat, and they waited for me. That audience did not go back. I, I don't know how many minutes I was gone. And I sat, the moment I sat down, they burst into applause. I started to cry couldn't believe how accepting they had been of me. Mm -hmm. It was like I had these incredible experiences doing it, yeah. the, the learning all that, mm -hmm. holding that, uh, that the, her life emotionally. Mm -hmm. The audiences giving me that kind of support, it was like, 
It, it literally changed me as an actress. Well, that was the second part of the, the question, actually. How different were the reactions of Amer the American audience and the British? Oh, well, the Americans laugh more. Oh, they do? Because, they're, because they're, the Jews in, and this is a generalization, but I, I don't think there'd be many Brits who would, uh, would, uh, would contradict me. They're more assimilated. Mm -hmm. We came here to New York. The laughter was raucous. I always <laughs> knew when there were Jews in the house. <laughs> always knew it. Uh, and also, they were political. They would yell at me, this is bullshit. <laughs> and they would walk up and yell at me. They would leave, stomping up the eye. Oh, my God. They were like... It was really, and it, that what you might call the AAA Jews did not necessarily embrace this play, <laughs> they, because of the the political stuff, you know. Right, right. Um, okay, John Weigand, is that right, John? Uh, anyway, aside from uh, talent and beauty. Uh, <laughs> What would you most attribute to your success? Tenacity. Once again. Yeah. yeah. Here's an anonymous one. Any weird jobs before uh, your career break? Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I uh, hustled dance for Arthur Murray. I would be on the telephones trying to get people to take that. <laughs> I, uh, you know, things like that. Of course, I was a waitress, like everybody else. Um, I think that that um, I was somebody's personal assistant. I did a lot of different things. Uh, Cam asks, "What do you suggest uh, to keep up our spirits during times of unemployment?" Work. Keep doing stuff. Get together with people. Do something. Find a bar someplace and do readings. It's just... Keep going. Go forth! <laughs> Alan Gary, um, Tales of the City was one of the best miniseries ever. Oh. And ex uh, spawned a sequel, actually two sequels. Um, any plans for another that you know? Interestingly enough, the sequels were all Canadian. First one, listen to this. The first one was done by the Brits, Channel 4. PBS took it. Incredible, scandalous reactions in Washington. It was about, because it was about, there was frontal nudity with men. They never mind frontal nudity with women, but now we want frontal nudity with men. Right. Oh, no, Huge. that was not good. <laughs> and, they, and the men were gay. That was even worse. And Jesse Helms went to town, an extreme right group, cut out all the intimacy things in the thing, put them together, and sent it as a video to the senator saying, this is what you're funding PBS to do, and PBS withdrew its support. Instead, they took Prime Suspect, which mm -hmm. was only about pedophilia, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> you know, thing, other Stay. things, you know. No and this is young people them. trying to find them themselves and their place in life in, in decades in San Francisco. You know? Right, right. Um, Jeff Woods Gallen, 
Um, how did you find a balance between uh, work and family, especially when your kids were little? Oh. Not easy. The best one, is this a man that asked a this question? Asked That's that interesting. Yes. Well, I found that interesting Usually too. the women ask right, that question. Exactly. Um, it's who you marry, number one. Yeah, I think it's an important thing. It's, it's got to be somebody who's, I mean, with this much used word, partner. Um, and um, who, when you're working, will do everything and without griping and carrying on. And, and when he's working, you'll do everything and uh, she's working, whatever. And uh, that's helpful. Um, the, the kids have to, you know, we're, we're all given a set of parents and there are things we like and things that we don't like. And your kids will have the things in you and the life you offer them, what they like and they don't like. Mm -hmm. And um, there are things that you'll make possible for them. And there are things that will be difficult. There were times when both my husband and I were working. Those We tried not to do that. We did our best not to do that. But there were times you couldn't avoid it. You know? And then with it, but for us, what happened was that accident. Mm -hmm. It just, whoa, just, we almost lost the house, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But it's hard. And then you live with certain regrets. People say, oh, I have no regrets. I can't. There are people who say that. I cannot believe that they live, <laughs> had a life without regrets. <laughs> I mean, I, it's just hard for me to buy that. But I'm assuming, I mean, they say it, I'm assuming it's true. I don't, you know, but uh, there are regrets, I, you know. Right. I, I'm going to end with this one. Um, Emilio Delgado asks, what was your greatest challenge as an actor? Well, Rose. Rose was the greatest. That was the, the most. The most challenging. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Thank you for listening to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. If you appreciated what you heard, please support us with a review or donation. And reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at SAG-AFTRA-FOUND. We'd love to hear from you.